Thank you for listening to the Highlander Podcast, where we have conversations about the past, present, and future of the outdoor industry. Thanks to Utah State University's Outdoor Product Design and Development Program for making it possible and for training the future product leaders of the outdoor industry. Learn more about the program at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Outdoor Recreation Archive, a collaboration between OPDD and USU Special Collections to preserve the history and print materials of the people, products, and brands of the outdoor industry. Follow the archive at Outdoor Rec Archive on Instagram. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode of The History of Gear, we talk with David Mydans, a legendary tent designer who got his start as an artist making product at Chenard Equipment, to becoming REI's first in-house product designer. I'm a dirtbag climbing bum. Um, REI saved my life. If I had not been designing tents for REI, I would have been living in one underneath the viaduct. Wow. Well, that's as good of an introduction as anything. Um, <laughs> David Mydance, everyone, thank you for being here. It's, it's great to, great to have you. Um, I, I appreciate that we got connected. It was Greg Hine, right? Who yeah, Greg, connected us. Greg was, um, uh, there was an old, old brand called Hein Snowbridge uh, back, back, back in the day. That was even before I was active in the industry. Mm. Um, and I remember that. Um, and uh, Greg was doing manufacturing domestically. Um, and then when sort of everything picked up and moved offshore, um, he uh, started doing sourcing. And he was doing the um, our bike uh, sourcing for our bike pack program. Uh, and then when what we had going at the time for uh, for large internals, when that sort of went south, uh, he jumped into the fray immediately and he saved our bacon. Mm. So uh, so Greg gets a, a enormous amounts of credit. He's became a close personal friend. Whenever he was in town to work with us, uh, he would stay with uh, Tracy and I. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Well, that we had a, a similar conversation. We recorded an oral history um, with uh, Ted and Greg, and we talked about the history of Heinz Snowbridge Snow oh. and Atan and um, Kirtland. Just in Kirtland. Yeah. So we, we talked all about their history and, and they recently sent us a complete collection of, of Heinz Snowbridge catalogs, which we didn't okay. have a complete run. So we're really happy to have those in the archive here. So, but what, what was the interaction again? So you, where were you working at the time when you got connected? Well, I, no, I, I, I would, I was at REI. Okay. Um, at that, I was, um, I am the, I, I used to call myself patient zero. Uh, because I was the first employee of REI private brands, mm. um, which was product development. Um, after they hired me, they hired my manager. Okay. Um, so um, let's see. So your question was, 
Well, how were your, how you got acquainted with Greg where you were working oh, at REI at the time when you got connected? Yeah. Yeah. I, I was working at REI. I was uh, doing um, packs and bike bags. Um, Greg came to us through our bike program uh, because uh, he would be the agent for manufacturing our bike packs uh, in Asia at that mm-hmm. time in Korea. Um, and as I think I mentioned, our, um, our internal frame pack program went south all of a sudden. You know, we thought we had it all lined up and everything was dialed. And then all of a sudden we discovered that the manufacturing was not taking place as we had uh, been led to believe it was taking place and it didn't meet our, um, our sourcing requirements. Um, and so Greg was able to step in at that moment um, and take on this program and he delivered on time beautifully. Um, and that was the beginning of a very long and fruitful relationship. Oh, that's great. Until, until at one point, the decision was made that REI wanted to take over uh, the sourcing of our own product. And at that point, Greg made, uh, I, I mean, it was really beautiful because um, it was meaning that he was going to be cut out of the, uh, uh, of the program, but he made every effort to help us transition as well as possible. So, you know, I just give him high grades in all regards. That's great. Plus, I would say just for the for I don't know anyone who is more detailed oriented Mm. than Greg. Yeah. Well, we we had a fun conversation with them and I love digging into his history and Ted's history in the industry and their contributions and. Um, and then that led us to you. Um, but I'm going to, I'm going to turn back the clock a little bit. Um, and I, I want to hear a little bit about even prior to getting into product. Um, did you, what was your connection to the outdoors? You, you, you were a dirt bag climber, but what was your first introduction to the outdoor industry and outdoor activities? Well, let's see. My first introduction to outdoor activities was scrambling around on the rocks, uh, the seaside rocks at Marblehead Lighthouse outside of Boston. Um, And then when I was 13 years old, I had the opportunity to take the Exum Climbing School Mm. in the Tetons, two days. And, you know, uh, and that just totally got me hooked. That's when I became a climber. And I've, you know, rock climbing was what it was all about for me for many, many years. Um, We lived on the East Coast. So the Schwangunks are where I'm from. Um, and I totally adore the gunks. I can still remember, you know, uh, on, on thunderstorms, uh, walking down that cinder track carriage road, you know, with a rope around your shoulder and your guidebook in your hand, looking up at the cliffs and just sort of trying, okay, there it is, there it is. And, uh, it, it was just, it was a wonderful time. Um, uh, and at that time I was, um, uh, I had graduated from college um, and I had gone to school across the river from the gunks, just up the river. So I was climbing all through college. Um, I eventually got an art degree and uh, moved to New York City, which is what a young artist does. And so I continued climbing in the gunks. I would say I've had two passions in life, art uh, and mountains. Um, and uh, so I got this art degree and I was living in the li- sort of living in the gunks. Uh, I was just a dirtbag, um, earning my living, you know, uh, uh, 
I was an unlicensed electrical contractor, among other things, you know, um, just living, you know, under the wire. Um, eventually, I designed a small tent, uh, got a patent on it, uh, licensed that patent to Chouinard Equipment. Um, and that was how I got started. Um, I remember I was, um, I was climbing in the valley and I went to do a, uh, uh, a Native American vision quest up on top of Liberty Cap in the valley. And I went up there with a space blanket, some water and a pack of camels so that I'd have a tobacco offering. And I sat up there for a couple of days couple of nights and uh, Wonkan Tonka, the, uh, the Sioux name for the great spirit came to me and told me I should uh, go down and hustle my tent. So it was very serendipitous because I'd gotten this patent on this little tent. Um, and I walked, I came down from the Liberty Cap. I walked into camp four and the first person I bumped into was a fellow named Mark Sargent, who at the time was an in-house uh, um, rep for Chouinard Equipment. And I started talking to him and, you know, he said, oh, yeah, yeah, show it to these guys. They're cool. No, they're not going to rip you off. You know, so I make a call. The next day I drove across the mountains to Ventura. I met with uh, Peter Metcalf, uh, who was the general manager, Jamie Martin, who was the design manager. Um, and, uh, ooh, okay, and one other person, I'll remember the name. Uh, um, oh, <laughs> I will. I remember the name because he's my, my, my ski teacher. Um, oh, tell him. Anyway, anyway, that's not the important point. At any rate, I showed them my little tent um, and they took it on. I was a uh, contract designer for Chouinard Equipment for probably three years after that. I lived in New York. I would trans, you know, I would drive out to Ventura all the time in my uh, Volkswagen van. Um, and I, I say, that's that was where I learned my design ethic. Everything comes out of what I learned there. Um, my motto, as I interpreted it as a designer, was if you keep your body in the sport, the sport will tell you what it needs. Uh, and that always worked for me. Um, I have a name for that. I call that design presence. And I distinguish design presence uh, from design thinking. Um, and that's a whole different story that, you know, we could get to at some point. Oh, I love that. Um, and I think it would really resonate with our students because we're, we're very good at design thinking. Um, and I think there's an opportunity to teach a lot more of that design presence that, that you're talking about. So I'd love to explore that in a future conversation, but just to get our, our dates on record. So it would have been 84 to 87 about, is that when you 80, were there? 84 to 87 would be Chouinard equipment. Right. Um, in 86, um, I moved, I left New York. I moved out to Seattle. I had a friend who, um, who had a boat and he bought a piece of property up on Lummi Island. I went up there to visit with him. That didn't particularly work out. I moved down to Seattle and I wrote uh, my friends at Chouinard equipment saying, dudes, help me. I need a job. Um, I got, uh, I think I got three references. One was um, to someone at the Swallow's Nest, which at the time was one of the leading gear shops here in Seattle. They're now, uh, now gone. Uh, another one was uh, the climbing buyer at REI. Uh, 
And the climbing buyer at REI had a buddy who was the uh, who was his squash partner, who um, who was the uh, uh, um, sort of the uh, he was a manager at FAW. FAW was the uh, wholly owned manufacturing subsidiary of REI, and their business was primarily uh, apparel. And they made apparel for REI. Uh, the factory was located on the site of what is now um, uh, the Mariner Baseball Stadium in downtown Seattle. Um, I was I, I was lucky. Uh, they 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 actually they hired me uh, surprisingly. I think really on the basis of my experience with Chenard. Um, and a year later. Uh, my manager took me for a walk by the railroad tracks out behind the factory and told me that I wasn't going to be getting a thaw paycheck anymore. He gave me about 30 seconds to realize that, oh, uh, am I getting fired? Uh, and then he told me from now on, your paycheck comes from REI. And so that was when I transitioned to REI. That would have been 1986. I was still uh, in a relationship with uh, Chenard Equipment. That lasted for about another year until that project was over. Um, during that time, I worked, uh, I did that one little tent that I had. Um, I worked on the pyramid, uh, the original rock bottoms, uh, different projects that were around at the time. But as I say, that's where I learned, not just, you know, not just my design ethic, which I say was, you know, keep your body in the sport, but it was more like, the technical process of how you do it. Um, what is the process of how do you make a pattern? How do you walk off one pattern against another so that everything sews together smoothly, developing sewing skills? Um, my attitude had been, and you know, I was trained originally as an artist, as a painter. Um, and my philosophy is I can do anything with my hands. Um, and so things like pattern making, fitting things together, running a sewing machine, um, these were all physical hands-on skills that I considered really important. Um, I always considered pattern making to be the heart of the art, at least where soft goods, meaning tents or apparel or things like that are concerned, um, uh, you know, so, soft goods were apparel, hard goods were tents and packs, hardware was the metal stuff that, uh, right. or, or the plastic moldings. And I never really got into a lot of plastic moldings. We had people who, uh, who would uh, design to spec. Right. Like well, I'm going to take a couple of steps back. Even, even prior to working formally for Chenard, um, what were, did you have any gear influences, any companies that, that inspired you or, or made you feel like, well, I, I could get into this space. I could make products. Like what, you know, what, what was there a company that inspired you to make that first tent for yourself? Well, it depends. My, I, well, yes, yes. And no, the first tent I made, I actually made when I was still at home, I might've been 16 at the time. I ordered fabric from uh, from a company named Hollybar mm -hmm. in Boulder. I'm sure you remember them, but yep. Hollybar, like Jerry, are these are long gone. Um, anyway, I got fabric from them, and I made my tent for the same reason that I've made all that I made all of my original gear, 
Uh, and for, I think, the same reason that all of my contemporaries made their gear. We weren't thinking initially of going into business. We weren't thinking initially of a professional career as a designer. We were generally dirtbag climbing bums. Um, and we wanted gear that we could envision, but that didn't exist. So that first little tent that I made uh, when I was 16, uh, I mean, it didn't exist. I mean, it was, it was, it was sort of, you know, it was, this is back in like uh, the late 60s. Yeah, early, mid 60s. So it had an A-frame in the front, a smaller A-frame in the back. It had a fly that was sewn into the ridge seam and extended out. And when you didn't want the fly, you would roll it up to the ridge seam. And then there was a big vent right at the top. Now, in, 1980, in, 19, in 1968 or so, the, these were ideas that nobody had ever done before, um, at least not that I had seen. Right. Um, and then later, um, much later, uh, the, the little tent that I um, licensed to Chouinard Equipment, I got a patent on that. It was the, uh, the Chouinard Comet, and YC uh, named it himself. Mm -hmm. um, and frankly, I think that, that that little tent today, today would be uh, a more advanced single wall, one person shelter than most anything else on the market. I don't frankly, just as a side, uh, so many of these little one person ultralight tents put the vestibule on the side. Mm -hmm. Okay, the comet put the vestibule on the front, but had an overhang. So it was really sweet. You would just sit there cross-legged at the front of the tent. Your, your stove is sitting outside on the ground, cooking away underneath the, the overextended uh, alcove. So that, 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 that and, and I played with various designs of that sort um, for a number of years since then. I, I'm curious. Uh, I mean, up until really, I, I don't know if it was Jack Stevenson necessarily was the dividing mm -hmm. line, um, but it seems like up until that point, tents are largely the same, right? You've got a lot of A-frames. I mean, it's similar, similar types of tents and feel free to correct me, but in general, right? Kind of a similar structure. And then you have people who start and maybe it's material innovation that starts to change some of this, but but you have people like Jack Stevenson who comes in from aerospace and thinks, well, why, why don't I create the tunnel tent, the elliptical arch, something with a little more shape, a little more round, something a little more aerodynamic. And maybe the materials at the time, tent poles, or maybe lend themselves more to being a little more flexible. Um, how aware of you or of, of some of the tent, other tent innovators, maybe prior to you and around your time as well, who were kind of pushing the category, the product forward? I would say Jack was number one. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, we, we all oogled over his catalogs. Uh, but besides that, um, that was the most innovative stuff going at the time. Um, large diameter, aluminum poles, pre-bent. Mm -hmm. That was a whole different way 
of creating a structure. Um, today, you don't even see that. Um, so there was that. Then there was, of course, the shape. Uh, he did focus well on ventilation, which was an inspiration to me. Um, and most of his tents were single wall or, or double walls without a removable fly. Mm-hmm. Like the, uh, eventually like the early winters, um, Nippet, Right. Yeah. Which was another, these were the tents. And then of course the, uh, the early winters, what was it? I don't know. They'd call it the first light or something. It was, um, mm. the little one. Actually, I have a sample of it. <laughs> Down in my, down in my, uh, I've offered you, you guys. I got a whole lot of old samples, um, and that's one of them. But, so you, uh, so you were aware of. I mean, as you were starting to dip your toe into this space and and start to work with Shenard, you were aware of, you know, some of these other people who had come before and were starting to push the industry and and tent design forward. Yeah, all of but well before right. Chenard, right. I, 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 I was getting uh, i had reached a certain level of maturity by the time that um uh, i got introduced to chenard um you know it, it was sort of like i got in my ba and now it was time for you know for uh, for the masters and the phd sure sure yeah. um and and that i but uh, but that, that yeah i'm sorry go ahead well, I was my uh, just bringing up another tent innovator. What were your thoughts on on Bill Moss? How much was he an influence or someone that you followed and just followed their work in general? Um, I'd say Bill, along with uh, with Jack, were the the two biggest influences. Jack was the one who really pushed me in an innovative fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, Bill Moss sort of created in many ways um, the ground the ground on which we created a tent industry. Mm. Um, now there were other influences. Um, uh, let's d- not forget um, you know Jansport Dome mm-hmm. uh, was a very, very big influence along with Jack in terms of using flexible poles. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, there were a couple of others, you know, I'm just, you know, I'm just really bad on names now. Uh, Noel um, was another brand. Um, but anyway, uh, I'm sorry, what was the original question there? Well, it was mostly about Bill Moss and his, oh, his yeah. contributions, his influence on your tent journey. Um, I think Bill was the one who helped us develop some pretty strong standardized processes like uh, the use of tent clips, mm. um, some continuous pole sleeves. He was a real innovator in terms of building uh, readily marketable double wall tents. Mm-hmm. And when I say readily marketable, I mean he he tend, his of course his designs were expensive. Mm-hmm. Moss tents weren't cheap, but everybody else took a lot of his innovations and simplified them. Right. Yeah. Uh, A little less complicated pole structures, uh, you know, things of that sort. Um, And of course, and of course, kind of bringing the architecture side into tent design, you know, be more curved structures in general. Right. I mean, this was an artist. I mean, similar to yourself, right? An artist coming into this space and, and, you know, he was quoted to say there are no straight lines in nature. 
right? Mm-hmm. So he was all about the curved tents, it seemed like. Um, and we had a uh, uh, Moss tent was was it was actually we REI we owned Moss tent right for a number of years and uh, for for a, for a number of years we had a uh, a factory. Um, well, after we we lost our factory um, that became uh, uh, the Mariners baseball stadium. Mm-hmm. The city took our factory by eminent domain and gave it to a baseball team. Um, so our factory moved down to a, a, diff- a more remote location down by a Boeing Field. Um, and when we were there, we were, um, uh, we, um, uh, Moss was there as well. We had Moss and Walrus and a brand called Armadillo that we created ourselves. Mm-hmm. Now, we, I shouldn't say we, because this was all sort of part of another wholly owned REI subsidiary. Right. So they were in the same building as we were, but we were our, we were REI and they were, uh, I think we called them Edgeworks. Mm. It was the name of that, that, that group. Um, so uh, Terry Bro, who was the designer from, uh, from Moss, who had worked with Bill himself. Terry was still the Moss designer at that time. So Terry was right down the hall for me. Terry was right down the hall for me. And Bob Swanson was right down the hall for me. Um, I mean, who better can you learn uh, learn from than, uh, than Terry and Bob? Wow. Uh, Terry, for our for just for information, has just now um, he when Terry became the well, he didn't become he was the designer for uh, MSR mm-hmm. for all of these years because MSR was part of that whole Moss Edgeworks thing. And it was all combined into one. And when REI decided that we really didn't need to be owning other companies, we needed to be investing our effort in our own brand. So all of those brands were sold and MSR went to um, Cascade Design and uh, Terry went with them. And he has just now, as I understand, retired uh, from MSR. Wow. Well, that's someone that we probably need to talk to as well. So, Oh, absolutely. Um, well, I'm curious, maybe you can settle the score for us. There's all sorts of debate about who, and maybe you know what I'm going to ask. Where the first dome? Who who created the first dome tent? Well, I, that's Jansport. Well, there it is. <laughs> I, I I mean, you, you know, it, 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 I say that you know, um, there were other things happening, but you know, it's like, yeah, it was Jansport that really, really popularized the the dome tent. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. What? As the more I and dig along, into this, along with Bill Moss, right? Right. With but, the with the pop tent, did the the straight straightforward dome. Bill was right. more eclectic. Right. And Bill can be credited, of course, with the, the with the pop tent and that you know significant yeah. contribution. So that's great. Well, I, the more I dig into the history, the more you start to find people make claims and, and uh, you don't know for sure who did what first. So you kind of need to ask someone who was there. Well, and I'll, I'll tell you, um, a, a good, a good buddy of mine, Mike Shear, And I know you've, you must, you've talked to Mike. Mm -hmm. 
just between Mike pays attention to these things. I never did. You know, like who was first, who did this, who did that? Yeah. It never really made a big impression on me. Um, you know, someone could make a claim, but then, you know, somebody else, you know, it's hard to say these things. Yeah, it is. So, I, so unless something is really, you, you can certainly say who were the big influences. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably uh, the more significant yeah. thing to think about, right? Who were the influences versus who did things first? Um, I'm curious. I, I, I want to cover my basis because there's, I mean, there's, there's so many people, large and small companies who are a part of tent innovation over the decades. And I want your thoughts on, on them as well. But um, one that we haven't talked about is how, how much was um, the bomb shelter from Rivendell? Was that ever an influence on you? I, I'm thinking of some of these smaller companies that dipped their toe Rivendell into the space. Bomb. Okay. Yep. So let's take a look at it. Okay. It was a very interesting, uh, innovative in many ways, and very, very, very enormously retro <laughs> in other ways. Okay, the bomb shelter. It was a Gore-Tex tent. So on the one hand, it's already very innovative. On the other hand, it was an A-frame, mm -hmm. and it had a tunnel entrance. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so these are some very, very um, old directions. Um, I remember probably the very first tent I owned was not one I made, but it was an army surplus mountain tent. And in many ways, it was a lot. I mean, it was an A-frame and a tunnel entrance. Um, that I think I, that might have been a double wall. I don't remember that. Uh, in particular, but the bomb shelter actually was, it was a very interesting. Um, I was aware of it um, and it helped me. I've, I've always liked single wall tents and creating a functional single wall tent um, is a real challenge uh, because it has to be ventilated. Mm -hmm. um, and the ventilation system, um, I remember when we just, when we first created the half dome, which was sort of our first, you know, real hit in the tent market. And the story behind the half dome was two doors, two vestibules, two vents, two people. And that was a simple formula. Um, and that sort of changed the outlook of the tent industry at that point. Right. Right. That's great. But I'm sorry. That was, a, that was a little, where were we? No, this is all great. I love it. I love the tangents. Um, yeah, where were we? Oh, I was going to mention, um, you know, along uh, along the lines, uh, all of these tent innovators. Uh, we've uh, Rivendell. We talked about Rivendell. Yeah. That's right. Uh, most of the tent innovators that we've talked about so far, we've gathered a lot of their archives here at the university. So we we actually have the entire Moss Tent Works collection here at the university. Mm -hmm. So all of his sketches and photographs and business records and patents are housed here. Um, mm -hmm. Another collection that we received recently, and I wonder if you had any, any interactions with this individual is Bob Gillis. Did you know Bob at all of shelter systems? Oh, they take me back. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yes, I do. I don't know him. Okay. I'm very much, I, I am very much aware of him. 
Okay. Um, and if I remember correctly, he was working with like intersecting pole sections and, and, and the kind of way you attach the tent to the yeah. intersection. Yeah. Yep. That was his big, his big thing. I, I know he also rolled up one day in the early seventies to the North face in the van that he was living in, um, rolled up to the North face headquarters in the early seventies and was pitching them on, on what became the oval intention. So he and Bruce Hamilton worked on that together and worked a lot on geodesics and were very obviously heavily, heavily influenced by, uh, by Bucky Fuller. So, um, I, I wondered if you had any crossover with, with, with Bob, but I mentioned that to say his sketchbooks are all here at the university as well and, and are, are very, very interesting and beautiful to look at. So, well, I, we should get back to you. We've talked a lot about the tent space in general, but um, you, you talked about getting into REI and that, you, kind of, you know, your first step into REI and how at the time, REI owns some subsidiaries, right? That are manufacturing products, Um, you know, MSR, Moss as well. Um, And then that transition to REI making its own products and you being back up for what I would say the, 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 that I don't believe that we, and when I say we, um, I reference REI, um, uh, I'm, you know, you cut me, and I bleed green. Um, as I say, you know, um, I, I love REI as my company. Um, how I could find myself um, having such loyalty to a corporate entity is sort of amazing to me. Um, but I do. Um, and as I say, I REI saved my life. I would be living in a tent under the viaduct if they hadn't given me a job. Um <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about that time um, they gave you that chance and you started working for Thaw? I guess what are some of the high points, low points of that that time? You know, as you were working working more with the subsidiary, what were some of the high points there for you? Well, the high point, uh, you know, we the purpose of my being hired at Thaw uh, was was really was to innovate. Um, because Thaw had a business, as I had mentioned, doing mostly apparel uh, for REI. And um, my manager at the time at Thaw, who hired me, um, wanted to get into other product. And so um, we created a couple, I did a couple of single wall tents for them initially. Uh, One was called the Phoenix, another was called the Kiva. and then at the same time, um, we did the, uh, the Cyclops bivy sack. Uh, that, that was the thing that totally saved my bed. Um, because uh, uh, I had been at Thaw for a year. We had done the Cyclops bivy sack. It won a Backpacker Magazine Design Award that year. And coincidentally, REI had decided that they wanted their own in-house design team. Mm. So they went looking for a gear designer and they said, well, we got this dude over here in our manufacturing subsidiary. Uh, how about him? You mm. know, so uh, I went through a bunch of interviews with REI product managers and stuff. And, um, and that was when my manager took me for a walk behind the factory and <laughs> told me I wasn't going to be working for Paul anymore. <laughs> <laughs> 
Wow. And that's when your 27-year journey starts with REI. Well, actually 26, because I 26. got a credit for okay. my year bar. Okay, there you go. So 1988, though. Yeah. So what, I mean, being employee number one, where do you start? You're, you're the first employee of this new team within REI, a company that is, you know, it's selling, selling other people's products. Where do you start? I mean, obviously there's some experience having the subsidiary, but where do you start from there? Building a, 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 you know, a product line, a brand identity for the company. Where, where do you even begin? Tough question. Okay. Um, because it's not in many ways, it's not where do we begin? Because um, I would say um, there's, there is a crucial relationship here between design um, and product management. Mm. Okay. The pro- at least at REI, the product manager owns the purse strings. Right. The product manager, uh, at least today, the product manager would write the product brief. Back in those days, the the term product brief didn't even exist. Um, back in those days, your product manager would sit down perhaps and make a sketch on a napkin or something. But the thing about a product manager, and this is something that I, I learned, um, product managers are historians. The job of a product manager is to predict the future on the basis of the numbers of the past. Mm. Um, Now, that's the opposite, really, of the job of a designer. Mm. A designer's job is to envision the future. Um, And it's not, you've got to start with what exists, but you've got to go beyond that. And your product manager doesn't usually do that. Um, You know, uh, and typically, for example, at REI, uh, new and innovative product is perhaps best allowed to develop at a, at, at, at a partner vendor because then you can buy 10 of them or 100 of them or however many you want. But if you're talking about an innovative product in your own brand, um, what you buy is what you're going to get. Mm-hmm. So if you buy 500 and you manage to sell 75, then there's a lot going, uh, going on, um, on remainder. Um, it's a lot, it, it's a lot different when, um, when you have more outlets to sell to when your REI brand, you only have one, one person to sell to, and that's your mm-hmm. product manager. Mm-hmm. If you work for another company, you can sell to REI, you can sell backcountry, you can sell to any number of vendors. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, there's that crucial relationship with your product manager. And there were a couple of um, incidents that are really important in that regard um, where, where an innovative product manager with imagination uh, can really uh, play well. Um, when we first developed uh, the half dome, um, the there was there was always a half dome in the REI brand line, and 
it was pretty much the same floor plan, but it had a small front front entrance with a little vestibule that came out in the front. Um, what we did was switch it around, put two vestibules on either side and two doors and two vents. Um, and that was a big change. Uh, our product manager at the time, Mike Cannon, had to be convinced because he had good sales in the existing product. Why would he take the risk? And totally, and the only reason I mention Mike's name is because he absolutely came through and he bought the new Half Dome and we know what that did to the tent industry. Um, another good example um, was um, we designed a, uh, a travel backpack. It was a day, well, sort of a travel day pack. I think it was maybe the first, I think the first dedicated travel day pack. Um, this is even before Eagle Creek did anything like it. Mm. And, uh, you know, it was a travel day pack. It was small. It had uh, uh, an expansion zipper that let you made it, make it bigger. It had internal compression, just like a travel pack often does. It had a hideaway hip belt, a number of travel pack features. And I asked my product manager at the time, uh, that was David Feith, um, you know, what's your price point? And he turns to me, said, show me the product. <laughs> okay. And that's how we came up with really good product. When you can really create that kind of synergy between design and product management, um, that's sort of that that is, I think, a holy grail of the business side of design. Right. That's a really powerful lesson for sure. Um, I'm I'm curious, um, what is the most challenging aspect of designing tents? You're creating gear, but you're also an architect in some ways. It's it's a really interesting and unique product, I feel like. Um, and, and I guess you could say that about a lot of products. I mean Packs, for example, are really interesting considering how much they, mm -hmm. they, you know, you, you wear them on your body and how much they can, you know, affect you, um, depending on how much is in them and footwear is, is similar in some ways, but, but you're creating shelters, which, you know, is the work of, of architects, but, you know, and, and, with so many more constraints. So I'm curious your thoughts, what are the challenges that you've run into over your, you know, decades in tent design, you know, with this product in particular? Well, yeah, certainly tents, tents are architecture. Um, it's more a matter of, you know, I, it's, I, I would think of it more in terms of, of describing the process by which I do it. Mm -hmm. um, because um, making a tent, to my mind, is a, was always a very, very hands-on experience. Um, I, ne I never started designing a tent um, uh, on my, uh, uh, in Adobe Illustrator, mm -hmm. uh, which was my go-to application for developing the sketches later on. What you would start with is there, there's, there, you start with the mental image and how people say that, oh, that came to me when I was getting off the bus or that came to me when, but when I was in the shower, 
Uh, I mean, these, these things are absolutely true. Um, that's how things do come to you. They're, they're stewing away in the back of your mind. And then at some point, something clicks. And when you let your mind go, when you let your mind drop into the zone, this is the stuff that bubbles right up. And so then, then you get that first initial sort of a vision of it. I can get in. I, I think I see what I want it to do. Um, and then the next step really is, um, you know, is, is to lay out a piece of fabric, create a floor plan, put grommets into it and start bending poles and creating, creating a structure. And, and at this point, the interesting thing is, is that there's a certain commonality in that design method amongst many designers, Okay, because this is sort of how I'm describing my technique uh, of creating a floor, putting the grommets in it, you know, you know, making design lines on it and then fitting poles and making them a little longer and, you know, doing that whole thing till you get the structure. Um, and that happens that, that happens initially. Um And, and then, then once you've got that built, then what I would do is I would stand back and take a photograph of it. Mm -hmm. And the photograph would go into Adobe Illustrator. Mm. And then you could sketch the poles and just, you could develop a beautiful sketch off of that. Now, I personally never made the next step the next step would be to go into not Adobe Illustrator, but to go into a, 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 a CAD program and actually try to create a three-dimensional pole structure. Mm -hmm. that, um, see, as I say, I always did it on the floor with a pole cutter and stringing it all together. Mm -hmm. I think today people can do it um, uh Perhaps as well, I don't know, um, you know, uh, on a CAD program. Well, that's, I guess that's the big question, right? It's um, do new tools and technologies um, embed you, have you, give you that design presence, right? That you, that you've been talking about, right? Um, there's, there's that component to it. And, you know, maybe technology does provide you more of that opportunity to embed yourself in the experience. Um and with the product, but, or maybe it doesn't, maybe it's a distraction and, and maybe it's dependent on the person using the technology itself. But so I, I'd be I, curious. I, 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 I would say chase that they are two different toolboxes mm -hmm. and you know, it's, it's whichever toolbox um, mm. you're most comfortable, whichever one uh, works for you. Um, I would say, however, that at least in terms of my own experience, um, I had just described the way I would go about creating a pole structure. Mm -hmm. um, and that's pretty much the process that I would see at every factory I visited. I never visited a factory where the initial pole structures were developed on a computer. Mm. That always happened after the fact. 
-hmm. In every factory I visited, there would be uh, the on-hands designer who would actually be cutting poles and fitting it together, not the same way I did it, but their version of the same way I did it. Right. Everybody had a, a somewhat different way of making it happen, but everywhere I went, it was some version of that hands-on process. Right. Well, and once the product goes to full production, at, at some point it has to be manufacturable by hand. And so I through that process of making that initial prototype, I'm sure you learn a lot about, is this even manufacturable, what I'm trying to do by making it yourself? Oh, what? Okay. A brilliant point, Chase. Okay. Absolutely. Totally true. Um, I, I'm sorry. We're, we're, I, I just lost my thought there. Oh, um, just that, just this idea that you almost being that, well, you working on a prototype yourself, I'm sure you gained so many insights around Oh, I don't know if we'll be able to do this in manufacturability. Yeah. 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 Manufacturability, to my mind, is like the biggest single responsibility you have as a designer. Mm -hmm. It's one thing to be able to make a one-off thing. Um, I used to, uh, I used to consider, at least when I worked, when I worked in the factory, I thought that there were three things that allowed you to uh, to that allowed you to spec out your product. One would be uh, the materials list. Two would be a hanger of patterns. Three would be a sewn sample. If you can provide your vendor with those three things, and if they really pay attention, they're not going to make a mistake. Right. Um, but. Making that translation is is difficult. Um, frequently, um, when I started in the factory, I would write my own operation sequence, mm. which would say, do this, do this, do this, then join these two pieces together. Mm -hmm. um, but when you send the sample off to the factory, uh, they do that themselves. Right. Yeah. So what you do is you send them a sample and you send them a hanger of patterns if you have made the patterns yourself. Right. Yeah. But eventually, so the process eventually um, became much more streamlined. We would take the initial design process that I had described, the hands-on process of, of cutting out a piece of floor, putting grommets into the floor, creating pole structures, photographing those pole structures, uh, putting those, uh, importing those photographs into Illustrator, tracing out those pole structures, and then adding all the surfaces and the vents and the clips and everything else to create a sketch. But you would create, that would be your spec document, and you would have the spec document and usually and the floor and the poles that you had made. And that's what you would send to the factory. You would send your sketch and spec document. You would send the poles and the floor. But there would never be a sewn sample because you never actually made the pattern. Mm. 
that was left to the factory. Um, right. And that I, I've always, you know, I still think that's that pattern making is really important at that point because uh, your gut knowledge of pattern making tells you a lot about what you can sketch that can actually be sewn together efficiently. Right. Right. Yeah. It's that blending. It's that blending of that hands-on ability and, you know, the sketching together that, that gives you a better idea of, of manufacturability. I always felt that, that it was really a crucial responsibility of the designer to pay careful attention to manufacturability. Your manufacturer is your partner. Um, In many ways, I felt closer to my partner, my manufacturing partner, than I did to the retail side of the company. Wow. Yeah. And so that there, while I was in fact working for a retail company, I always saw myself as in manufacturing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and manufacturing is, is, it's an extension of your team in a lot of ways. Right. Yeah. And I think the more you think of them as a team member, the better results you probably get. I think some companies or some designers think of their manufacturer as their manufacturer, right? They don't, they see them as other. It's not, you're a part of, you know, what we're trying to build. It's a, we're going to send you the design and you're going to make it and we'll give you feedback if it's not right. You know, sometimes that is what happens. Yeah. yeah. You know, it, and, and that's what, you know, I have, there are some, some of my manufacturing companies. Um, I have dear, close, personal friends, you know, um, uh, David Yo, who runs the, uh, the um, uh, Yunnan uh, tent factory in Dalian, China, is a close, I mean, I love the guy. I've had dinner at his home. I know his wife and his kids. Um, and he and some of his uh, associates have had dinner here with Tracy and I in our home. Um, and I think that's, to me, that's the thing that I, more than anything else, that I totally value about um, my experience is um, is learning so well that that there are so many different ways of viewing the world. Right. Yeah. No, that's, that's beautiful. Not, that, that's just more uh, just uh, that, that's not gear. That's life. I love it. No, we we'll take that too. We'll take life, all the life conversations in, within this interview too. I, I'm curious. That brings up. Um, I was going to, I was going to mention this, but this is a good segue. Um, your time at REI sees massive changes within the industry. Not only REI having its own private label um, or own brands team that develops with you being number one, um, but you also see, and we mentioned this at the beginning, um, you know, a company like Heinz Snowbridge um, did not, um, well, because of this transition from manufacturing stateside to overseas, Heinz Snowbridge wasn't able to keep up and, and adapt and change and, and uh, ended up going under uh, because of that. Um, REI saw that transition. You mentioned specifically having a subsidiary doing manufacturing locally, but you had to make that transition as well to keep up. Oh, yeah. What was what was this? I mean, these monumental shifts and changes, you saw them firsthand. What was that like for you being a part of that? Well, there, uh, there, there was a re- 
Initially, there was a big sense of loss. Um, when I first started at Thaw, I, I said, okay, dude, you're a factory rat. That's what you are now. And I, and I loved working in a factory. Um, I loved the fact that I could walk out of my little corner and leave my cutting table and walk out onto the sewing floor. And there would be my product. You know, I could just walk out and watch someone actually working on my product. Um, and, and as I say, I would write the operation sequence for what was happening. Um, uh, that was domestic manufacturing. Um, and I felt a great deal of loyalty to it. I loved having my own company. Um, I knew personally many of the sewers who were working in my company. Um, and when that gradually uh, sort of went away, um, that was a loss. It, of course, was replaced by um, uh, a different game because I uh, learned a whole different way of doing things um, and a different way of thinking about things um, and met a whole lot of different people. Um, and that was, that was totally positive. I really like how you frame that as, um, I, th I think for many, the first inclination is to think of that as a negative. And of course there's loss, but I love how you frame it as ultimately there's, there's a significant gain there, um, from, from this, you know, large transition that mm -hmm. occurred that, that you were, that you saw firsthand. So I, I appreciate that perspective a lot. Well, I'm curious, um, obviously you have a significant allegiance and loyalty to REI. Um, it's, I, I mean, it's, it's uncommon to hear anyone stay at a company for, for, especially nowadays, right? It's five years. Sounds like a long time. You were at REI for 26. What, what kept you there? Was it that initial, they gave me a chance or was it that plus you were, there was just so I, much I would, work would, to be done that was exciting and invigorating? I'd say it was REI. Um, and, here, here, uh, and this brings up the reason why I can bring tears to my eyes about a corporate entity. Um, REI was welcome to neurodiversity before that term even existed. Um, I, I am Mr. ADHD with a, a strong dose of ADS thrown in. Um, I'm a totally off the wall kind of person. Um, you know, here's the thing. I would tell this story when, when I actually retired from REI, they threw me a wonderful party. Um, and I had to make some comments. And one of the comments I made was that in 26 years at REI, I had never, not once, written an Excel spreadsheet. Now, can you, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm working for, I mean, my company lived and died by spreadsheets. How in the world could I function without? And we would go into a meeting because I couldn't read a spreadsheet. It was total Greek to me. Um, my mind could not wrap itself around a spreadsheet. But my friends, and these were, this is why I was so loyal to the company, when there was a spreadsheet with data that I had to be able to understand or access, people would take that spreadsheet and they drop out every line 
and every column that wasn't relevant to the point they were making. They would simplify that spreadsheet down to a simple table that I could get my brain around. And that's why I, one of the reasons I have such, you know, um, such affection for the company. Um, I was not, you know, I'm, I'm not by nature um, a real team kind of member. I'm, I'm sort of out there. And yet um, this organization made me really welcome and fitted me in and made adjustments for who I was. Not, it didn't just demand that I had to fit myself into some job description. They were willing to flex the job description to my capabilities. Um, and how can I not have love and affection for, for those kind of people? Right. That, that's why it's a co-op. I love that. That's powerful. Well, I mean, we, uh, upon reflecting at y- your time at REI, what are you most proud of about your time at REI? Well, I think, you know, I don't know. I feel that um, my time at REI bookended um, some of my own experience um, as a designer and, um, and as a climber. Um, when I started, uh, as I say, there was no such thing as a product designer. Um, you know, we were mostly just dirtbag climbing bums who discovered that, you know, like what we wanted to do, we were all dirtbag climbing bums and somehow we loved our sport. We lived our sport. Um, and there was nothing we wanted more than to somehow create a life that sort of was centered around our sport. Some of us, you know, uh, some of us who were more talented climbers than I was, um, you know, became guides or, you know, uh, went to work, you know, as a a professional climber. Um, I never had that skill, um, but I had a different kind of skill that allowed me to create that opportunity to, um, to earn my future within my sport. That's amazing. That's great. Well, I'm curious what now, now what post post design career, do you still find yourself designing? Do you still find ways to be creative and, 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 uh, you know, make products? Are you still, you know, how do you remove that part of your life? I don't know if you can ever let that go fully. No, you, you, you don't. Um, uh, downstairs in my studio, um, I've got a juki and I got a big cutting table. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm, I still work on projects, you know, um, last year, um, we did a, uh, uh, a boot bag for skiing. Okay, and this is for cross-country skiing, not downhill. So the boots are smaller, and you want to throw a lot of other things into the bag at the same time. And yet you do want to be able to keep some of the small things like your sunglasses and your phone and your wallet separate, you know, from your wet gloves. So I, you know, I created a little uh, boot bag, and we made, uh, I think we made uh, 30 of them. And they became Christmas presents for all of our friends. Um, things like that. Those are, you know, I, 
Um, you know, we've talked primarily here uh, about tents, um, but um, when I started, I did tents, packs, sleeping bags, climbing harnesses, bike panniers, and travel luggage. Over the years, uh, we hired lots of other people and the division grew bigger. Um, and at the time I retired, I was doing tents and sleeping bags. Um, but giving up packs was really, really tough for me because tents and packs were the two places that I really, you know, really felt that I had a, I, I had a, a, a feeling for. And in packs particularly, I was good with sort of small little things like um, the REI Express bike bag, I believe was the first single shoulder sling pack in our industry. Um, we did that um, a year later. Um, what was it? Uh, I think it was, well, it doesn't matter. And there was a, um, there, there was uh, the express bike bag. Um, there was there were some other small packs that we did, um, like the, I mentioned the hitchhiker. I like small packs, uh, little things like that. And so I've been working on uh, you know a little urban sling pack, things like that. I keep myself busy. Um, I have my sewing machine, um, and I have a cutting table, and I got a big roll of oak tag, so I can cut things out and make them. That's great. Well, you talked about how designers look to the future. Um, and so I, I don't think we can end this conversation without <laughs> talking about what you like currently when it comes to tents. Are there things out there, companies, products that you think are interesting or innovative? And then maybe we can talk about what does the future look like? You know, if you're looking at your crystal ball, where do you see tents going in the future? So but maybe first, what you know, who's doing interesting things right now, in your opinion, in, in the tent space? Well, it depends. I, I would, um, I think things are on the one hand are pretty stagnant. Mm. Okay, there are places where there are innovative things happening, um, and I think they're pretty much at the lightweight end of the market. Mm -hmm. um, otherwise. Um, there's a lot of iterations happening on existing stuff. Um, a lot of, you know, um, a lot of, there are a lot of nice, there are a lot of nice lightweight, say two person tents. Um, Big Agnes, of course, sort of owns part of, part of that market. Um, I would really like to think that REI is, close behind, but I'm not so sure. I think, I, you know, I think some of that is just between us has slipped a bit. Um, I was really committed to that. And I found that, um, that really going for the, the really lightweight side of things was not something my product managers were all that interested in. They preferred buying that from, um, from a vendor. Um, mm. uh, so I'm not sure, as I say, I, I felt that my career was 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 very much bookended because uh, I don't know, you know, the real question now is how to translate design presence 
into design thinking. Mm. And that's a real challenge. And, and it's a challenge I haven't solved myself. So I see that as a challenge, um, you know, for you guys, for the next generation is how do you bring that? And, and, and a lot of that, a lot of that really comes down to answering the question of sustainability. Mm-hmm. I don't think that the design presence is not necessarily a sustainable design process. Um, it's very individualistic. Um, it really requires uh, an expert behind the curtain. Um, in design thinking, you can get away with it because, okay, if design presence, if you've got the designer is design presence and on one side of the designer sits uh, insight, and on the other side of the designer sits engineering. Okay. Um, my, my idea of a designer in design presence means that, that, in, that, that insight and engineering are part and parcel of the design process. We spoke earlier about manufacturability. That's a matter of engineering. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the responsibility of a designer to create product that is manufacturable. And that means that the designer has to be an engineer, at least, at least to, a re- to some extent. Right. Um, and the same thing, I think, holds uh, on the other side. If you allow insight to just be some separate group of people who go out and do research and try to decide, okay, this is where the market's going. This is what uh, our customers want. Um, and then you tell that to the designer. And then what do you, then, then the designer is supposed, then that creates a brief. Then the designer is supposed to create a bunch of sketches on the basis of what they've gotten from insight. And then that goes over to engineering to figure out how to make it. Um, I feel design presence is a process that brings all three of them together so that insight and engineering are not separate. Mm. I love that. And that, that, that's the challenge I see for the future. And when I think of my, my own career being bookended, um, I, I mean that, you know, it's, it's, those are, that's where it begins and, and that's where it goes. Right. I love that. Um, well, I, do you, any, any parting thoughts? Is there anything that we missed? I, I feel like this is a pretty good place to, to wrap up our conversation. I think there could definitely be a part two, um, if we wanted to have a part two to, to cover, you know, a number of other topics, but, but uh, what, what did we miss this go around? Oh, I don't know. I don't know what we missed. Uh, you know, my, you know, my, my mind is so much into what we have talked about um, that I'm not necessarily, you know, I've talked about, you know, um, my love and affection for my company, my belief that, uh, that the sport is, the sport is where design presence comes from. Um, and I never thought of myself so much as, uh, as a, you know, I wouldn't think of myself as a designer of some other product. It's only the stuff that I, I in the sense that I know intimately. 
Mm. Um, uh, we can at some point, maybe uh, not now, but uh, touch base on, as I say, I've got a lot of the same kinds of junk that you guys are collecting. I mean, I've got catalogs. My ca- I don't have a collection of necessarily a one vendor. I've just got a whole bunch of, you know, all, all these vendors and all these sketches that I've done over the years and stuff like that. And uh, I know Tracy wants me to get rid of this stuff. <laughs> well, that's where we come in and we're happy to help. So let, let I'll hit end on our recording and maybe we can talk about that a little bit, you know, off air. So we'll wrap up this conversation here um, and continue another one um, offline. So thank you for taking the time. This has been fun. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast. For more conversations with outdoor leaders, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, watch episodes on the Outdoor Product Design and Development YouTube channel, or on opdd.usu.edu slash podcast. Follow along on Instagram at USU Outdoor Product and let us know how you're enjoying the show. 